European Heart Journal, Issue at a Glance. Volume 45, Issue 5. Focus Issue, Arrhythmias. By Editor-in-Chief Professor Filippo Crea. Read to you by Morgan Bryan. The Dark Side of Arrhythmia Treatment. Iatrogenic Tricuspid Regurgitation and Drug Toxicity. This issue opens with the state-of-the-art review article entitled Artificial Intelligence Revolutionizing Cardiology with Large Language Models by Magtold Boonstra and colleagues from the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Artificial intelligence is playing a growing role in cardiovascular medicine. The authors note that natural language processing techniques are having an increasing impact on clinical care from the patient, clinician, administrator, and research perspective. Among others are automated generation of clinical notes and discharge letters, medical term coding for billing, medical chatbots for both patients and clinicians, data enrichment in the identification of disease symptoms and diagnosis, cohort selection for clinical trials, and auditing purposes. In the review, an overview of the history of how natural language processing techniques developed with a brief technical background is presented. Subsequently, the review discusses implementation strategies of natural language processing tools, thereby specifically focusing on large language models, and concludes with future opportunities in the application of such techniques in the field of cardiology. The issue continues with a focus on arrhythmias. In a state-of-the-art review article entitled Tricuspid Valve Disease and Cardiac Implantable Electronic Devices, Martin Andreas and colleagues from the Medical University of Vienna in Austria note that the role of cardiac implantable electronic device, or CIED-related tricuspid regurgitation, or TR, is increasingly recognized as an independent clinical entity. They also indicate that novel surgical and interventional tricuspid valve treatment options are increasingly applied to patients suffering from TR associated with or related to CIEDs. This multidisciplinary review article, developed with electrophysiologists, interventional cardiologists, imaging specialists and cardiac surgeons, aims to give an overview of the mechanisms of disease and diagnostics and proposes treatment algorithms for patients suffering from TR associated with CIED leads or leadless pacemakers. While a strong body of knowledge has been gathered in the past few years on risk factors and management of atrial fibrillation, or AF, data on new-onset AF in patients with chronic coronary syndromes, or CCS, are scarce. In a fast-track clinical research article entitled New Onset Atrial Fibrillation and Chronic Coronary Syndrome in the Clarify Registry. Alexandre Gauthier and colleagues from the Hôpital Bichat Assistance Publique Hôpital de Paris in France aim to describe the incidence, predictors and impact on cardiovascular, or CV, outcomes of new onset AF in CCS patients. Data from the International 45 countries, Clarify Registry, or Prospective Observational Longitudinal Registry of Patients with Stable Coronary Artery Disease, were used. Among 29,001 CCS outpatients without previously reported AF at baseline, 
patients with at least one episode of AF stroke flutter diagnosed during five-year follow-up were compared with patients in sinus rhythm throughout the study. The incidence rate of new-onset AF was 1.12 per 100 patient years, cumulative incidence at five years, 5%. Independent predictors of new-onset AF were increasing age, increasing body mass index, low estimated glomerular filtration rate, Caucasian ethnicity, alcohol intake, and low left ventricular ejection fraction, while high triglycerides were associated with lower incidence. New-onset AF was associated with a substantial increase in the risk of adverse outcomes, with adjusted hazard ratios, or HRs, of 2.01 for the composite of CV death, non-fatal myocardial infarction, or non-fatal stroke, 2.61 for CV death, 1.64 for non-fatal myocardial infarction, 2.27 for all-cause death, 8.44 for hospitalization for heart failure, and 4.46 for major bleeding. The authors conclude that among CCS patients, new-onset AF is common and is strongly associated with worse outcomes. Whether more intensive preventative measures and more systematic screening for AF would improve prognosis in this population deserves further investigation. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Robert Hatala and Peter Hlivak from the Slovak Medical University School of Medicine in Bratislava, Slovakia. Atala and Hlivak commend the authors of the long-term outcome study of patients from the Clarify Registry for their systematic efforts to better understand the prognosis of the most prevalent CAD presentation, CCS. Their findings should spark further clinical trials to expand our knowledge of the intriguing association between AF and CAD and their optimal concomitant management. Amiodrone-related interstitial lung disease, or ILD, is the most severe adverse effect of amiodarone treatment. In a clinical research article entitled Amiodarone and Pulmonary Toxicity in Atrial Fibrillation, a nationwide Israeli study, Gal Saban and colleagues from the Soroka University Medical Center in Beersheba, Israel, indicate that most data on amiodarone-related ILD are derived from periods when amiodrone was given at higher doses than currently used. A nationwide population-based study was conducted among patients with incident atrial fibrillation, or AF, between 1999 and 2021. Amiodrone-exposed patients were matched one-to-one -one with controls unexposed to amiodrone based on age, sex, ethnicity, and AF diagnosis duration. The final patient cohort included only matched pairs where amiodrone therapy was consistent throughout follow-up. Directed acyclic graphs and inverse probability treatment weighting, or IPTW modeling, were used. Patients with either prior ILD or primary lung cancer were excluded. The primary outcome was the incidence of any ILD. Secondary endpoints were death and primary lung cancer. The final cohort included 6,039 amiodarone-exposed patients who were matched with unexposed controls. The median age was 73 years and 52% were women. After a mean follow-up of 4.2 years, ILD occurred in 2% of patients. 
After IPTW, amiodarone exposure was not significantly associated with ILD, HR 1.45, P equaling 0.09. There was a trivial higher relative risk of ILD among amiodarone-exposed patients between years 2 and 8 of follow-up. Primary lung cancer occurred in 0.8% of patients. After IPTW, amiodarone was not associated with primary lung cancer, HR 1.18, B equaling 0.53. All-cause death occurred in 18% of patients. After IPTW, Amiodrone was associated with reduced mortality risk, HR 0.65, P being less than 0.001. The results were consistent across a variety of sensitivity analyses. Saban et al. conclude that in a historical database from a large health maintenance organisation, AF patients who were exposed to continuous amiodrone treatment had no to marginally higher risk for ILD, similar risk for primary lung cancer, and lower risk of all-cause death compared with patients not exposed to amiodrone. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Rui Providencia and Kishore Kukendra Rahaj from the University College of London in the United Kingdom and Sergio Barra from the Hospital de Luz Arabida in Portugal. The authors note that the finding of Tsaban and colleagues should be taken with a degree of caution. As the authors rightly say, their findings will need validation by other studies. At this moment, it's premature to recommend amiodrone less than or equal to 200 mg daily in AF patients, even when catheter ablation is not being contemplated. When rhythm control using a pharmacological approach is being attempted, the guidelines still recommend that owing to amiodrone's extracardiac toxicity, other antiarrhythmic drugs should be considered first whenever possible. In a Rapid Communications article entitled Ventricular Arrhythmias During ST Segment Elevation Myocardial Infarction and Arrhythmic Complications During Recurrent Ischemic Events, Marina Demidova and colleagues from the Lund University in Sweden indicate that early malignant ventricular arrhythmias, or VAs, during the course of ST elevation myocardial infarction, or STEMI, markedly contribute to in-hospital mortality, yet have no influence on long-term prognosis as the cause of arrhythmias is believed to be reversed after revascularization. In this study, the authors aim to test the hypothesis that VA during STEMI indicates an increased susceptibility to ischemia-induced VA and is therefore associated with a higher risk of VA during recurrent ischemic episodes. The study cohort comprised 2,148 patients discharged after primary percutaneous coronary intervention for STEMI. In total, 167 patients had re-acute coronary syndrome, or re-ACS, of whom 98% were fully revascularized at index STEMI. Ventricular arrhythmia baseline was independently associated with VA during re-ACS, adjusted odds ratio 8.22, P equaling 0.007. Ventricular arrhythmia during re-ACS was not associated with either a history of myocardial infarction prior to the index STEMI, infarct localization, the completeness of revascularization at index STEMI, or therapy at discharge. 
The authors conclude that the small group of patients who were defibrillated during the early hours of STEMI and who were at high risk of recurrent ischemia may have a higher risk of recurrent VA and may therefore benefit from implantable cardioverter defibrillator therapy. More research is needed to test this hypothesis. However, these data indicate that post-STEMI sudden cardiac death risk stratification should include the presence, type and timing of VAs, as well as the likelihood of recurrent ischemia. In a Viewpoint article entitled Atrial Fibrillation First Detected After Stroke Is Timing and Detection Intensity Relevant for Stroke Risk? Luciano Sposato and colleagues from the Western University in London, Ontario, Canada point out that the proliferation of novel devices and their technical improvements have resulted in a steady increase in the use of prolonged cardiac monitoring, or PCM, for detecting AF post-stroke in those with no history of AF. The rationale behind PCM post-stroke is that finding AF would warrant oral anticoagulation with the aim of preventing recurrent strokes. However, randomized controlled trials have not demonstrated a benefit of PCM for secondary stroke prevention, either by using implantable loop recording, or ILR, or by repetitive halter electrocardiograms. A randomized clinical trial comparing direct oral anticoagulants versus antiplatelet agents in patients with a total duration of ILR-detected episodes less than 24 hours with normal atrial size may be justified. However, some patients and physicians may be reluctant to participate, even though there is no evidence from a randomized controlled trial regarding recurrent stroke risk reduction by oral anticoagulation. Another knowledge gap is whether rhythm control therapy in AF, first detected after stroke, may lead to a risk reduction of recurrent stroke. Finally, in this patient population, attention should be paid to cognitive dysfunction. The issue is also complemented by two discussion forum contributions. In a commentary entitled, Microvascular Resistance Reserve, Does One Size Fit All? Kane Janssen, Peter Daman, and Kaya Kroijmans from the Radboud University Medical Center in Nijmegen, the Netherlands, comment on the recent publication Microvascular Resistance Reserve Diagnostic and Prognostic Performance in the Ilias Registry by Cohen K.M. Boerhout and colleagues from the Amsterdam UMC in the Netherlands. Boerhout et al. respond in a separate comment. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will be of interest to its listeners.